BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. OK, fine, whatever you want. And now my face is now saying, fine, whatever you want. Is it? Is that what it's saying? <laughs> I don't know, it's just... Your face and your mouth are not in, not in the right order. Yeah, you know, and it's not the first time I've been told that. <laughs> anyway, apparently it's Hilarity Week this week. Is that right? National Hilarity Week, yes. It was announced um, just now. Um, it, we're basically we're, we're trying to increase the amount of hilarity in the world. Um, so how, I don't know how that how, how does that work? Oh, can I tell you the the, the best thing ever? Is so, this hilarious? Is this going to be part of Hilarity Week? It, yeah, it can be part of Hilarity Week. Well, you well, you um, better make it funny. All right, come on then. I'm, I'm laughing. Yeah, shut up. So I'm going. To, I'm just going to explain. It. So I was sitting at the um, at the table with my son, who I've always referred to as child too, but he said, why do you ever use my name? I said, well, because, you know, anyway, so no, with Gabe. And, um, and, and, we, and he said, what's the word that means a word that is, that is the definition of itself, okay? And the good lady professor and I looked at each other going, what? I don't know, I've got no idea. No, no idea at all. Anyway, we looked it up. Turns out, so would you know what's the definition of a word that def- that means that can also that also means the word itself? So the word is what the word means. Well, the only thing that occurred to me is, you know, the you know the uh, the ampersand. Ampersand, yes, yeah. which is an and sign, right? Yes, that's right, and it means and per se and and of itself it's an and it's an et does it yes and ampersand is is and of itself and so it's something like that sure so is that hang on i'm just looking this up now is that okay so anyway okay so right so a definition of it anyway it turns out the word is autological right and autological No, an autological word, I'm reading this, also called a homological word, is a word that expresses a property that it also possesses. So, for example, the word noun is a word. Noun is a word. Okay, so noun is also. So anyway, so then we were doing this thing about autological words that describe themselves. Okay. Yeah. Do you know what the, the, and there was a whole load of them, um, uh, do you know what the best autological word in the English language is? And this made me laugh for about 10 minutes. Yeah. And every time I think about it, I laugh again. Unhyphenated. It's... Well, you spoiled that a little bit by talking across it, but... Yeah, but that's because your face and your voice are not happening are at the same time. Sync. Let's okay. do that whole thing again. You set it up and I'll shut up the way you ask. Yeah, me they'll, they'll just leave the whole minutes. thing in. They'll leave the whole thing in with the comedy retake. So I know that everyone's heard this. When we were going through the definition of autological words, the best one was unhyphenated. I just, I thought that that was, there was something so perfect about that, that I have been sitting <laughs> and I've been out walking and I've been thinking to myself, that a definition of an, un, you know, of an autological word is unhyphenated. And for some reason that has given, that has made me laugh more than anything recent. And, and I guarantee you more than anything that's going to happen on today's show. <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's a good start for Hilarity Week. That is that that is a very good start because it is funny, and I might it chuckle about it. Thank you. Exactly, chuckle. And what happens is the chuckle just it just it's a continuous chuckle that has grown over the week. I'm, and I've been chuckling about it. E- even do you know? Guess what I've done this week? Incidentally, I've watched. You're not going to do it because it, I've watched Chernobyl. Oh, that's a, oh good, very good. All of it. 
So your de- your verdict on Chernobyl was? I thought it was, well, I mean, Anthony Horowitz said it's the best television he's ever watched. And I would say it's, uh, it's certainly up there. And uh, for which the final episode where they manage, where Craig Mazin manages to put Jared Harris sort of like on trial, not just explaining the chemistry of what happened at Chernobyl, but also managed to eviscerate the entire Soviet system is, is, is a work of genius. That's what I thought. Okay. So here's what I think. I think one, two, and three are brilliant. I think episode four gets off on a very bad foot with the woman with the cow doing the speech, because that's the first moment in the series that it felt like speech writing. And although I think the whole, you know, the animal thing, I think it's done very powerfully. I think it that that's the that's the one that strays into melodrama. And then I think it's kind of pulls it back for the final episode. But although I think that that stuff that you took because you told me about this before, although I think that all that stuff about the the explanation during the trial, yes, it does do a very good explanation. It does come dangerously close to you can't handle the truth. Particularly and 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 I so I think and I th- here's what I think the problem is. I think The Wire has spoiled all television for me because the thing about The Wire is it is so free of any form of grandstanding. So I think Chernobyl is really good. Incidentally, um, everyone else in the house thought it was brilliant. I think the first three are great and terrifying, you know, and I, I mean, I remember I was in Ukraine six, five, six years later and, you know, there was still, there was still Geiger countering the bits of food that were coming out. I mean, I remember all, it was really, really creepy. Um, I think one, two, and three are great, but I think four absolutely takes a st- it's that whole beginning sequence with the cow. And you I think that. five. No, no, I know, I know, but I think the weird thing is that I don't think before I watched The Wire, I was that attuned. I mean, I it, it I don't know why it's bothered me because I've always said before I love no. melodrama. I have no problem with melodrama at all. But The Wire has fundamentally changed my brain. I well, think. I'm, I'm with all the other members of your house. I think they're right. I think it's great. I mean, I think it's really, really, really chilling and really terrifying. I think the moment when he looks out of the window and you see the graphite on the ground and he knows that that's what he's seen is is astonishing. Absolutely. I mean, it is a, it's really good. And amazingly, from the, you know, from the, the guy who gave us the Hangover sequels, it's, it is extraordinary. And it, you said it's all written by him, right? It's not a... Everything. It's not a Absolutely yeah. Everything. So yeah, there's yeah, there's no doubt that, there's no doubt that it's brilliant. I just think that I've been told that it was perfect and it, it isn't. Well, okay, very good. So hilarity week is now. You've you've kind of spoilt that now. We were we were on a roll with your unhyphenated. I think my ampersand fact was quite interesting. It wasn't hilarious, but it was okay. And now we're back in the back in the grit of nuclear devastation. So no, the most the most significant thing was the fact that um, that as a result of you and me doing Kermode and Mayo's home entertainment service, that was good. I've been I've been watching television, Simon. But what you need to look at is the ampersand, the E-T in italics. That's what it is. It's an E and a T and in italics, that's what the ampersand is. And Sorry, say that. And the ampersand, mean- the symbol, the ampersand. Symbol for an ampersand. Is an E-T. It's E-T written down and put in italics. That's, that's, where, that's where the sign came from. So it means and of itself and. And per se and ampersand. That's what it is. But it doesn't say E-T. It says ampersand. If you write an ampersand, no, an ampersand. I'm, looking, I'm looking at one on, on, on my... I'm telling you, you don't have to look it up. It's, no, I'm not looking it up. I'm looking, on, e- I'm, 
I'm looking on my on my keyboard to see an ampersand on my keyboard, so I can see whether your your stuff and nonsense about it being an ET is. It makes me so I can't I can't see ampersand on this. Oh, there it is. It's an, it's not an e, it's not an E and a T. It's an it, it's not. It's just it's like a it's like a figure eight that's been been in a fight, Mark, and lost one an, of its teeth. In in its origin, it's an ET in italics. And of itself, and and per se, and just trust me, I am right on this. No, I do trust you that you are right on this. I think you're, you're right just on most things. It up I'm in just, case. I'm not looking it up. I'm look, my hands are look. I'm not touching the keyboard. Hilarity right? week continues. Right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Right now, I'm gonna touch the keyboard. Right now, I'm going to Google an ampersand. All right, how do you spell it? Is you're it on your own on this one. This is now monologue no, from Mark. Uh, how do you spell ampersand? A M P A S E R ampersand. No, it's E A M P ampersand. Yeah, just show me a picture of it. Oh God, the internet. Yeah, okay. I'm looking at a picture of it. Right. Okay, tell. I'm, I'm showing this to you. How Simon Mayo? I know is what it that? looks like. I'm just telling you. It's in its origin. It's an E and a T written together and italicized. That's where it came from. Oh, I tell you what, I can see it on this version. Oh, no, I, really? Yes, That's okay. nice. Yeah, on that version, that one, that's what you're talking about, okay? But no one does an ampersand like that. People do an ampersand like that, right? Which looks like somebody badly tying a, a, a knot or, like I said, a figure eight with a crutch. I don't care what you're showing me. It, things change over the years. I'm just telling you, in, in it, this, is the, this is just hilarious stuff. I think this is great. But that's where it comes from. Okay, happy Simon Paul has just noted Simon is correct. Simon, I, Simon Paul, I know he's correct. I'm not arguing with whether he's correct. I, I'm just saying oh, how he's taken it away. No, I wasn't arguing with whether you were correct. I was just saying I can't see it. Simon Paul has now texted, when is the hilarity starting? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a very, very good question. Well, it, it did right, start very well. It started very well. I think yeah. it started hey, very Simon, well with your unhyphenated. Do you know what a great example of an autological word is? Unhyphenated. Un <laughs> that's right. That's really, really good. <laughs> that is fantastic. Right. Anyway. Hit us with some emails. Andrew McIntosh in Birmingham. Uh, on the 17th of July show, when discussing being unable to avoid hearing his kids' music because he the walls in his house are so thin... Mark described said walls as being made of Kleenex and spit. Now, that expression yeah. suddenly rang a bell with me, and I'm wondering if Mark can identify where he's dredged that up from. But I know because you get sent emails as well, you'll know what the answer is. Yeah, I, 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 I hadn't thought. I knew that I'd got it from somewhere, but this email, I think, probably certainly correctly identifies where it came from. Which it may is... well be Peter Benchley's novel of Jaws, which I'm assuming yeah. Mark will probably have read back in the day. Uh, yes. You're absolutely right, Andrew. That's why he talks about uh, adultery, because it's not in the film, but it is in the book. It's something Hooper says to Ellen Brody with reference to cheap motels, taken from a subplot that thankfully didn't make didn't it into the screenplay the <laughs> when they're fantasising about a location for an extramarital tryst, and that's it. So yeah. so Kleenex and spit, that, I mean, it's a great phrase. It's like a good name for a band, really, but it comes from <laughs> We're Kleenex and spit. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. So the, the hilarity has started then, Simon. Well done. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, most most of the phrases I use that I really like, I have stolen from someone. And it's quite often from books. I mean, I read a lot when I was, I don't read anything like as much as I should do now, but I read a lot of books when I was a child. And 
like all that stuff, like, you know, you know, I mentioned it only in passing that all comes from, from Bill Blatty and I, a lot of Kurt Vonnegut. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, I'm sure it is Jaws now. In fact, I mean, I, the one thing it reminded me of, which I felt a bit creepy about was that you're right. It does come in an exchange between Hooper and Ellen Brody in, in one of the most unsavory sections of the novel of Jaws, which really, yeah, mm, probably shouldn't be there, but there we are. Uh, Ali says, uh, dear Bunk and McNulty, on Friday's programme, you mentioned that Lee Child described Jack Reacher as a condom stuffed with walnuts. I have not read the Jack Reacher series. However, I do believe that it was the late, great Clive James who first coined the phrase when describing a then somewhat more beefy Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes, I think I may have confused them um, because I remember that we were talking, because I haven't read the the Jack Reacher novels, but I remember that you said when Tom Cruise was cast, that can't be right because one of the defining factors of Jack Reacher is that he's, is he six foot six or something? He was like a, yeah, he's you know, he's like a grenadier guard or something. And whatever else you can say about Tom Cruise, he's not enormous. Little. No, he's teeny weeny Tom. <laughs> but teeny weeny Tom is big box office and it's the bigness and the hugeness of the box office. I think worked rather well. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know if I can tell you this, but I'm about to be interviewed by Lee Child, and I'm a little bit nervous about that. But anyway, well, you know why, why are you to be interviewed by Lee well, Child? Well, I don't know. I don't know because it will get taken out, won't I? If I tell you why I am, then Simon, who is an oppressive producer, will birdsong the reason. But okay, I can't well, say well, okay. I'm being interviewed by him. No, here's what you can do. Tell me. He can birdsong it, and then we can continue talking about it without making reference. Oh, I see. What, yeah, so what are, you, what, what are you being interviewed for? But he's a bit, but for for what for a, for a newspaper article? No, for a. Yes, by him. Weird, huh? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I know. Well, that was an entertaining section. In fact, under that bird song was so much hilarity, and I'm sorry it's been taken out. <laughs> it's good, but it's been it taken out because of eye-watering, terrible correctness, which is just overtaken our producer. Uh, Joachim has uh, dropped us a line. I am a long-term listener, first-time emailer from Germany, and was amused by Mark's admission about why he refers to dogs as he. And cats as she. Oh yeah, which which I do, and I wasn't I wasn't making it up. I, I that is what I have always. I know it's not right, but it's when I was a kid. I used to think that dogs were male cats and cats were female dogs. This is one of the habits every native speaker of German has to unlearn when speaking English. In German, dogs are grammatically male, der Hund, while oh. cats are female, die Katze. Only specific animals of the opposite sex are referred to as die Hundin or der Katte respectively. It takes some conscious effort to only use he or she in English when talking about animals whose biological gender is known. Incidentally, the film mentioned in the address is known somewhat, which because at the top of the, the email he put male cats and female dogs. Right. Incidentally, the film mentioned in the address is known somewhat more specifically as Schwarze Katze Weiße Katze, in German, black female cat, white male cat. Excellent pronunciation as usual, Simon, he says. He actually writes it in the email. Yeah. Well, then that's because you studied German. 
Well, I only did it for a year, but, you know, I can do the accent. I just can't understand it. But anyway, that is correct because I checked it. Schwarzerkatzer, Weisserkatzer. Black female cat, white male cat. Now, uh, before we head on to the, uh, we welcome our uh, live radio friends, uh, just some final words on, uh, and, and this is going to be hilarious, uh, movie criticism in songs, you hope. Um, Dell says, yeah. uh, Griff Reese's song, Self is in the Sunset, mm -hmm. right? Griff and Lily yeah. Cole have the misfortune of watching the 1990 Hamlet as the world ends. Here we go. Gibson howls with rage. The worst Hamlet of his age. <laughs> Thirty-four in the Hollywood Hills. One-dimensional lower thrills. Haven't finished yet. It's the I'm again what's company <laughs> selfies in the sunset will get you many lights. So Mel Gibson howls with rage, the worst Hamlet of his age. <laughs> 34 in the Hollywood Hills, one dimensional lone thrills. Lisa and Lily Cole. And then Armageddon wants a wants a friend. That was... Armageddon wants company. <laughs> so uh, and while just while we're in the groove here, yes. and it's it's a hilarious groove. Daniel says, "I'm writing on the subject of songwriters reviewing movies. I think Mark would be particularly excited about Swedish punks, Randy. Have you heard of Randy? I haven't. Okay. No, but I feel that I'm that's about to be rectified, right? Yes. Well, they have a song which is called The Exorcist, in which singer Stefan Granberg declares this. When I was younger, me and my friends all the exorcist. Tombs got so scared, couldn't sleep for days. He wouldn't listen to me. When I told him it's not for real, I told him it's make-believe. There is no heaven Exorcist got me so scared. It sounds like 90s American power pop, really, rather than punks. Anyway, he doesn't stop there because Granberg continues like this. Some years went by, then came Heretic Exorcist 2, starring Linda Blair and Max von Sydow 2. And none of the mood or the tension <laughs> Some years went by then. The Heretic Exorcist 2, starring Linda Blair and Max von Sydow 2. <laughs> not really. It had none of the mood or the tension. It was not a worthy continuation. Anyway, a big disappointment. <laughs> so I'm surprised you don't know this song. Anyway, I don't know this. Here's, so I've never heard this before. Right. So finally, he sings this. It sounds like Fountains of Wayne. That's what it sounds like. Anyway, <laughs> like 1990 came Exorcist 3, based on the novel Legion by William B. 
It's bloody. It's not as bad as I thought it would be. Anyway. Not as good so, as it would be, still worth seeing. Daniel says, goodness knows what he made of 2005's Dominion. Can the good doctor think of another <laughs> song that manages to cast a critical eye on an entire cinematic <laughs> franchise? <laughs> I'm surprised that you no one had pointed the existence of that song out to you before. When, when, when was that record made? Is it recent or is it? I don't know. They're not punks, though, are they, really, by any definition? No, no, they're, they're sort of they're power poppers. Where are they from? Uh, well, they're from Sweden. Sweet Swedish power poppers singing about the exorcist. That's bizarre. I am. I am. I'm genuinely delighted that that uh, somebody's brought that to my attention. I will now have to purchase that because I'm a I'm a bit of an exorcist completist, and um, I remember for ages I was trying to get hold of a of a DVD of the Turkish exorcist ripoff Satan, and uh, very hard to get on DVD, although you know largely available on YouTube. But I have I now have to own I have to own that. So what are the band called? They're called Randy, and, Randy. If you, and yes. So, so the clips, the three clips that we have, have been labelled Randy Exorcist One, Randy Exorcist Two, and Randy Exorcist Three. This is a whole new spin-off series. We've got three well, not, films to be made. It's not that new. There was a there was a, a European film that was released under the title, well, two titles. One of them was Naked Exorcism, and the other title was The Sexorcist. Oh, okay, so, so maybe it's so been done before. It has been done before. Yeah. Anyway, they're a Swedish punk band from Hortlax in Sweden, formed in 1992. So, wow. I think my their next... definition of punk is slightly different to everyone else's. Yeah, but... yeah, that's all right. But, I mean, that's, that, that, that is remarkable. I must, I'm going to get hold of a copy of that, and I'm going to take it to William Friedkin when lockdown is finally finished. I'm going to give it to him as a present. Uh, anyway, so thank you very much for all the correspondence, uh, which we gratefully uh, hoover up and then use. In fact, we we sort of market it for our own purposes. This has uh, come in from producer Simon. Randy is a Swedish punk rock band from Sweden. No, 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 yeah. no, no, no. But they, they were particularly well known for writing catchy songs with politically conscious messages, often broaching topics like income inequality, socialism, working class revolutions throughout European history, Karl Marx and Marxism. And oh, The really? Exorcist. Yeah. Good. Well, I'll, I'll just stick with The Exorcist. I'm not that interested in all the other topics. <laughs> the other stuff. Um, anyway, um, on with the show then. We're about to be joined by our live friends out there in Radio World. Will the hilarity begin soon then? Oh, well, it's been 20 years without it. I don't see why it should start now. <laughs> Hello, good afternoon. Welcome to your uh, fabulous latest dose of Wittertainment coming to you via Five Live. Mark's in his cupboard. I'm still in my back bedroom. Uh, I can see your what's that T-shirt, Mark? You won't just stand up just a oh, little this bit. This is a uh, it's a it's a it's a it's a Blade Runnery T-shirt. It's a Tyrell Corporation uh, T-shirt. But you, on the other hand, well, I saw are... my, I found my Exorcist T-shirt from a few years ago, and I thought I know that'll be a hoot. So it's it's not my favourite T-shirt, but I always like to put it on just so that you like it. Really, and I didn't buy it for you. Is that right? No, I bought it for myself because I thought that would be funny. It'd be funny to wear an Exorcist T-shirt because because it's Mark's favourite film, yes, but not that's mine. Right? Yeah, because you haven't seen it yet. No, no, absolutely. It's still in its wrapping downstairs. And Maybe you, this week will be an Exorcist weekend. You see the poster behind me. You see that? Yeah, it says Jeremy. Not yeah. watching that. Either. I haven't seen that either. No, no, no. I have no intention of seeing that. But um, the Exorcist one day. You know, I can't. I, I don't know what that day would be. Maybe if there's a period coming up where we where we can't leave the house for a couple of months or something, maybe that. 
maybe that would do it. <laughs> anyway, Lucy Lou's going to be our guest on the program. Uh, we have a guest top 10 coming up. Mark's going to be reviewing some top movies. What are you reviewing? Well, they're just movies that are out. What are you going to be looking yes. at? We're going to be reviewing uh, St. Francis, which was going to be out a few weeks ago, but was uh, delayed. We're going to be reviewing Stage Mother, which is the new film with Lucy Liu. There is um, a true life uh, crime drama called uh, The Traitor. It's a packed show. First up, uh, and it, by the way, uh, uh, we're not here, so but we do gratefully receive all your emails to mail at bbc.co.uk. Uh, because they are, you know, they form the backbone of the program. Well, Mark is the backbone of the program, but obviously, but we we pad around his backbone with uh, muscles and sinew. Digging yourself, digging yourself into a hole here, Simon. I just move on. <laughs> Thank you, Paul in Lincoln, fifty-one and a half, second place in Lincolnshire Echoes Rubik Cube competition, nineteen eighty-one. Mark and Simon on the eighth of June, I cycled home from work as usual, locked my bike in my garden shed as usual and then suffered a cardiac arrest and collapsed in my garden, unconscious and not breathing, clearly not, as usual. My fiancée, Julie, who was in the kitchen, I mean, the fact that he's written this email means... That no, it means we, we know it has... Yeah, okay, fine. Okay. Uh, my fiancée, Julie, who was in the kitchen working initially, thought I was teasing the dogs when I... <laughs> just... Of course. Really? That's an interesting way of teasing the dogs. Anyway, when I didn't respond to her offer of a cuppa... She rushed out and realised that I wasn't, I wasn't teasing the dogs and that things were not as they should be. She shouted to our neighbour to call 999 so she could stay with me. Her rather half Pete, that's the neighbour, I imagine, rushed round and administered CPR long enough for the Lincolnshire Integrated Voluntary Emergency Service, known as LIVES, first responder and ambulance team to arrive and take over. They were 45 minutes with me in the garden, stabilising me until I was OK to be taken to Lincoln's intensive care unit i was there for two and a half weeks suffering from horrendous hallucinations and flights of fancy which i firmly believe made me a difficult patient with my agitation and desire to escape on the third sunday my brain just seemed to rewire itself and pieces of the real world and my previous life started falling into place i was now well enough to be transferred to the excellent nottingham city hospital where I was booked in for a triple heart bypass, a procedure that was successfully performed on July 14. Now, what with one thing and another, Julie was not allowed to visit, so it's been a long six weeks. We are both movie fans and would maybe watch four or five films a week in the evenings. Despite repeated efforts to get her to join our church, she has resisted, claiming to prefer listening to music, as though that was, you know, it is possible to like both. Anyway, but... That does mean that when we watch a film we both love, uh, we both love. I take the credit for finding it, and if it doesn't go quite so well, I say, well, Mark Kermode recommended that one. So you're already the full guy here, Mark. Story to maintain some semblance of uh, normality, what we've been up to is video calling and synchronising a movie on one of the multiple subscription services we're signed up to. Julie on the TV at home and me in hospital on my tablet laughing, gasping and crying at the same parts. Although we wouldn't talk much during the film because there is that code of practice, you know, it was just wonderful to be able to glance over to see her as engaged as I was. And it did truly give me a sense of well-being and the feeling that everything will indeed be all right in the end. Just for the record, our favourite new release was The Old Guard on Netflix. Oh, yeah. That's the Charlize Thron is a... Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Dead warrior. And our favourite older film was The Disappearance of Alice Creed on Amazon Prime, a film oh, I know great. Mark will love as it was shot entirely on the Isle of Man. But, the Isle of Man, uh, yeah. <laughs> more importantly, um, we talked, we reviewed it on the show. I'm sure we reviewed it on the show. 
because Eddie I've, Marzan came on. Eddie Marzan, or yes, uh, he came in and we talked about it. No, it's fantastic. That's right, yeah. yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. Anyway, today it's a, it's says, a three-hander, three-hander film in the Isle of Man, and he was he was great because he was he talked very frankly about how difficult it was to film the opening scenes, and uh, yeah. Paul continues, anyway, today I've been given the all clear to go home and would like to publicly thank the doctors, nurses and surgeons at both the Lincoln and Nottingham hospitals who've looked after me so brilliantly. It's easy to forget it's not just COVID patients they're saving. Also to the Lives First Responder, they're the Lincoln team, who was with me so quickly and calmly, took everything under control until the ambulance arrived. Here's a stat I didn't know. Paul says a huge thank you to my next door neighbour, Pete, who without his skilled intervention, I'm sure I would be among the 96% of people that suffer an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that don't make it. And finally, to Julie, who has really been the most affected by all of this, but who has been absolutely there for me all the way. She will always be the love of my life. Thanks to all of the above. We'll have many more movie nights together and we'll always be grateful for that. There you go. So it's the fact that he was writing it which led us know that it was going to be all Yeah, no, no, absolutely. End. But yeah, what an but extraordinary anyway. email. So credit to Julie, the Lincolnshire Integrated Voluntary Emergency Service and the Nottingham and Lincolnshire team, everyone sorted. Good. Are you? Yeah. I thought you might have been slightly nervous during that, so I'm just... I was, sure but, no, but, you, but it was because you, at the beginning you said the, this, the, the email has come from this gentleman, so therefore, you know, that's a plot spoiler, which I want, because I thank you very much. Now, uh, our Witter World feature yes. won't be with us for much longer because we literally can't do every single country, but let's take in Simon from Manchester. Uh, I come with a nomination for Ukraine's entry into Witter World, okay. 2014's The Tribe. Set in a rundown oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. boarding school for deaf teenagers, the film is entirely in Ukrainian sign language and without subtitles or happiness. The tribe, uh, you've lost me already, Simon. The tribe remains tattooed on my soul for its bleak and brutal story and its ability to take me on a journey to a part of humanity I thankfully do not know. The film is less about deaf teenagers and more about the life these teenagers are forced into because they're deaf and shunted out of the way of society. Like most people, I do not speak Ukrainian sign language, but it doesn't take long to slip into this visual, non-verbal world. Make no mistake, it's not a pleasant watch. I recall curling up in the fetal position on the sofa during several scenes. It does, however, remain one of the most unique film experiences I've ever had. Whilst devoid of joy, it's a profound and unforgettable experience. It's it not is. a first date or family movie night, though. No, I mean, it is a remarkable film, but it is. I just I went back to my review of it, which fin which concluded with this sentence while the absence of verbal language presents no barrier to engagement scenes of almost unwatchable squalor offer a potentially insurmountable challenge and i mean it, it is i mean it's a genuine it's a really remarkable film and i think it will stand the test of time i haven't seen it since it came out i remember being really knocked sideways by it but i mean it is a remarkable piece of work it's just very very tough watch two more entries one from yeah. uganda courtesy of emily ward Emily says, first time email, I've given you a long history together. I guess you could say I'm a relatively short term listener. As a Brit living in Uganda for the past 12 or so years, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest the Ugandan entry for the world map of cinema is Who Killed Captain Alex? It'll probably be unlike anything you've ever seen before. And by the end of the 70 minute budget action epic, you'll be left wondering if you've just seen a work of genius or not. Directed, filmed and produced in 2010 entirely by Nabwana Isaac Jeffrey Godfrey, or Nabwana IGG for short, he never imagined the attention or infamy that this would gain. As the opening titles explain, the action film was made with just a couple of hundred dollars in the area now known as Wacky Wood in the nation's capital, Kampala. 
The movie in its original format is lost, get this, as it was deleted from the creator's hard drive to make space for his next film. My, <laughs> Imagine that. Nope, sorry, I've just wiped. It's like the old BBC approach. I'm sorry, we've lost all the early episodes of Doctor, Doctor Who because Who. we needed the tape. Anyway, so wow. like, if you haven't seen the cinematic gem, please do check it out. Yeah, I, I, I feel less bad now about saying I haven't seen the cinematic gem, but it sounds like I'm not alone in that. No, Mike Gibson in Moscow, finally. Uh, no one has come forward with a film for Russia yet. And as I'm a British resident in Moscow, I've been for the last 25 years, and a Wittertainee since 2001, I would like to suggest Russia's film, um, and I do this with humblest respect, as I know whatever I say will spark a Dostoevsky debate with my Russian friends, so this suggestion comes from the heart. Okay. I would offer, I could offer, worthy masters like Tarkovsky and Eisenstein, but I will leave it to Mark to explain their merits. I'd like to suggest iconic Soviet movies, uh, like, I could, I beg your pardon, I could suggest iconic Soviet movies like Irony of Fate or Moscow Doesn't Believe in Tears. However, I would like the 1988 film Heart of a Dog, based on a book by the Soviet writer Bulgakov. It's a bizarre, surreal and strangely touching satire of Soviet society in the 1920s. Shot in black and white, it's about a lovable old school medical professor who transplants the brain of a worker into the body of a stray dog. <laughs> And please, may I have a short before this feature? I would like the classic Russian animation Hedgehog in a Fog, an enchanted <laughs> cartoon about a hedgehog in fog. It's a childhood classic, beautiful and very unique. If any Russians would like to take issue with my choice, then Pazolsta, you're welcome, but let's do it over vodka. Uh, Mike Gibson in Moscow says, Dosvidanya, which is goodbye. Anyway, I, I, that's... I haven't seen that. Um, funnily enough, I did um, an online conversation with um, Zvyagintsev recently for the, I think it was the New York Film Festival. Anyway, we were talking about things like uh, Loveless and, and, and he started talking about, you know, his interest, what he thought were the best Russian movies. And I said, have you ever seen The Ghost That Never Returns? And he said, no, what is it? I said, well, it's, you know, it's kind of silent, actually kind of part silent, part sound film, um, Avram Room, uh, you know, early Soviet silent cinema that we that we accompany um the band that I play with and he said no I haven't heard that and I thought yeah there we go see see <laughs> yes I, and and was that was that it was that the end was there another it was the end of that anecdote that was the hilarity oh, okay. thing was there when he said no I haven't seen it <laughs> but it was funny it was funny um, unhyphenated very good. Uh, you need the podcast for all the to details about quite joke. how. If you yeah. don't understand, if you find yourself listening to this program, finding it's not quite as hilarious, you need to hear the first part of the program on the podcast to find out quite how hilarious it actually is. That's the truth <laughs> um, before we get into our guest top 10, which is a very interesting uh, top 10, uh, current movies that are streaming, which are still uh, getting a lot of attention. Robin Berry on Clemency, which was that your movie of the week last week? I think. Yes, it, it absolutely was, and it will be my my movie of the week for quite some time because it was just it's great. Clemency was every bit the heartbreaking, shockingly real drama it appeared to be from the poster, says Robin. Phenomenal acting from the entire cast takes us to the heart of death row, and the tight script kept us there on edge. It's a real shock that this stuff is happening in America every day. I think we forget or take for granted that our friends over the pond still execute human beings. It's something you expect from the far-flung corners of the globe in countries with dubious human rights record, not in the home of the Oscars and the Super Bowl. Anyway, it's a thought-provoking, gripping, must-see film. That's Clemency. See last week's programme for Mark's review. And I, uh, I, I echo the, the thought because Alfred Woodard was uh, uh, interviewed the week we were off um, by Sanjeev and Robbie Collin was pointing out that 
when the film was first playing at festivals, everyone was talking about it as an Oscar contender, and then it sort of dropped off the radar, which is a which is a real shame because she is brilliant in it. Also, it's um you know it it's it's got a great score, it's got a great script. It's it's a I, I thought it was a really really remarkably powerful film, and it, and it, it, it it's a shame that it was overlooked at awards season. I got round to to watching Greyhound, the Tom Hanks World War Two. Uh, oh yeah movie and, and 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 yeah well i enjoyed it i mean i thought it I was, I mean, it's a long time since i've seen a world war ii submarine cat and mouse film apart from the somewhat ludicrous bit where you see him and his fiance or girlfriend or whatever that bit at the beginning it just seems utterly pointless if they just kept the whole thing on the ships that would have been fine but i thought it, it was a fine piece of writing from mr hanks because it's so technical uh, and identifying the different ships on the convoy and identifying the submarines. I thought it was terrifically exciting. Yeah, I mean, I thought as, as an exercise in putting you there in, and the fact that what happens is every single thing that they overcome, suddenly there's something else right hard on the heels of it. So you do get that sense of really being tied up in the tension because it never lets go. I thought it, I thought it did do a pretty good job of giving you the sense of you know attacks coming from all different sides. All that stuff about you know torpedoes in the water that they have to there's one there's one bit in it in which there's a torpedo coming from one way and a torpedo coming from the other way and they have to and it sounds hokey but it's re- works really really well and I also thought I did wince about Tom Hanks's foot yes which given the amount of injuries that you get in a movie it's it's like nothing at all but it is <laughs> but it is it but is very yeah it, it just yeah you know foot injuries it's like that bit in um a quiet place you know when she steps on the nail and and you know monsters eating people is one thing but stepping on a nail is just something else i'm really hoping that they get round to when when the quiet place 2 comes back because that was one of the films that one of the early films that got dropped yeah uh, when we all went into lockdown that oh, comes yes, around I again forgotten about it, because yeah. that because that's the it, there's a bus went past me the other day and it still had the posters. You know, it said opening in March. And I went, oh, okay, fine. Well, it's still got the old poster on, but it would be very nice if... Um... Did you see it? Did, did you see a preview no, screening? No, I you was going to because John Krasinski was coming around to do promo and then it all it all got pulled. Anyway, apparently, here's currently, our... currently slated for September the 4th, apparently. Oh, well, I'm looking forward to that because we'll all be back in action. We'll all be back in the swing of things by then. So... Uh, good. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So here's our guest top 10. What were there not being a box office? I mean, there's about to be a box office, I suppose. Yeah. But there ain't I mean, a box cinemas office are, at the moment. Cinemas are open. They are playing movies now, yeah. Right. Our guest top 10 comes from Simon Gibbons, who says, okay. like many of have asked during lockdown, I found myself a lot of time on my hands, with which I have decided to spend catching up on films. Around the beginning of June, I realized I had access to watch Almost every film that Jason Statham has been in without spending extra money through DVDs and a variety of streaming services, including a few free trials. Since it is unlikely I'll have another opportunity like this in the near future, I decided to make it my goal to watch all 42 of the Statham's films before lockdown was fully lifted. And as of July 7, I have been successful in this mission. I present to you the top 10 films starring Jason Statham that Mark will no doubt disagree with. Okay. 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 Ready? <laughs> yes. At number, have you seen? Uh, how many would you say you've seen? Probably. Have you seen, seen all the ones that are in this? All the ones that are in this chart. I, um, I've never sat down and actually gone through all. I mean, I've, I've seen every Jason Statham movie that's been released and and press screened. Um, because I was, you know, so yeah. Um, I've certainly everything on this list. Right. Number ten, the bank job. Simon says a yeah. sleek heist thriller that turns into a tight thriller towards the end. The bank job manages to stay entertaining throughout even when it diverts from political intrigue into more conventional fare. 
Yeah, it's it's fine. Bear in mind that there are some there are some omissions in this uh, chart that we'll get to at the end. But I, yeah, I've got no problem with that at number ten. Number nine is the transporter. Uh, Simon says if the first half of the film were not a generic Euro thriller, this would be higher on the list. The second half features some of Statham's finest work, including the shirtless oil fight, of course. Yes, and he brings yes. a lot of charm to the role of Frank Martin. Yeah, I mean, I, I this would be higher up for me because. It, as I said, years and years ago, I wrote a, a piece for a newspaper about uh, naked male wrestling in films, and uh, and I said that if you if you I mean, go, obviously. yeah, obviously, because it was it was to do with uh, they reissued Ken Russell's Women in Love, and I think I'd just I'd just seen um, uh, the Cronenberg. Uh, anyway, so I wrote this this piece about um, you know I I I love that that oil wrestling scene uh, in Transporter, and then I discovered that if you go if you go on the internet and you type Jason Statham and oil wrestling, um, you get directed to several sites which uh, which have that scene, and then also uh, start recommending other places you might like to go. I wasn't going anywhere near go any of them. No, yes. it turns out that apparently I'm not the only person in the world who has Googled Jason Statham oil wrestling. Safe is at number eight. Simon says, for my money, this is the great underrated Statham movie. Director Boaz Yakin, Yakin injects moments of nuance into what would otherwise be a standard action film and also tries to be different in the way the action scenes are constructed. Plus, Statham brings the required weight to his character. That's safe at number eight. Yeah, it's fine. Um, you know, opens with a shirt off fight. Um, it, it's, you know, he's a purgatorial existence. He ends up with this uh, kind of math genius kid. I think it's fine. I think it's, I, I think it's fine. It's not, it's not for me up with one of the movies, which is notable by its absence from this chart, which I know that people will, will have picked up on already. Number seven, Fast and Furious, Hobbs and Shaw. Simon says, returning to the role of Deckard Shaw, Statham further proves how funny he can be exchanging quips with The Rock in the current peak of ridiculousness in the FNF franchise that manages to not have a dull moment in its over two-hour running time. That's Fast and Furious at number seven. Yeah, so, I mean, again, this is fine because what this is doing is it's going, you know, it's it's there is there, it's got the mainstream hits in there um i don't know that i would i don't know that i would have included that because of the ones that aren't in there but again it's okay but these aren't the transporter should have been higher up because transporter is a better film than fast and furious hobson Shaw. number six is lock stock and two smoking barrels simon gibbons says guy rich's debut film shows a lot of promise which he would later squander as he mixes a classic heist gangster setup and infuses it with a style reminiscent of train spotting the ensemble narrative is tightly woven so that everything has a satisfying conclusion and remains easy to follow and entertaining that's lock stock and two Smoking barrels. Yeah, so for me that would have been in the ten. Um, I think Stath is great in it, but it w- but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been. So we, anyway, I'm just it, it's, you know it's angels dancing on the head of a pin. I mean, all Stath movies are absolutely watchable. Ask Simon Brew. Incidentally, I'm sure Simon Brew is listening to this in some form. Hello, Simon Brew, who for years and years has been the champion. Or he's always thought that the the key question any film journalist must ask is, what's your favourite Jason Statham film? He's the guy from Film Stories, he is. Who, uh, which is a very, very good value and very entertaining magazine. Yes, they put heroic people on the cover. Like us, best-selling edition. <laughs> Crank is at number five. Simon says Crank starts off at 100 and goes up from there. <clears throat> uh, luckily, it does not have the level of racism, misogyny and general nastiness that the somehow even more unstable sequel has. Crank at five. It's funny because my, I mean, Crank is bonkers. 
when crank when crank 2 came out um we were off that week and andrew collins reviewed it on radio 5 in it I, he walked out of it mm. and he said that it treats you as something that's just crimed out of the primordial swamp and it, it is it's i i hate crank 2 i think it is a sort of nasty film but i just looked up on wikipedia which can, can you know has this sort of running account of everything's ever happened on the show it said um it was left to mark to explain that in leaving because i went to see it in, in a cinema Collins missed a scene where the state has to fight people wearing enormous U2-style papier-mâché heads, and another scene in which Jason appears on a game show with his mum being played by Jerry Halliwell. And then it concludes, even Alan Jones, in Mark's words, the the critic most tolerant of completely unacceptable behaviour on screen, described Crank 2 as needlessly offensive. There you go. Well, look, what I'm going to do, I'm going to do you the top four, okay? I'm going to do okay. all of these together, and then you okay. can then you can chip in once we're done because we're running okay. out of time. Okay. Uh, number four is Spy. Statham gives possibly his best performance as the scene-stealing super spy Rick Ford, playing off the persona he cultivated over the past decade. He manages to provide more laughs in his supporting role than many other comedies to bring to their entire cast. Three, Fast and Furious 7, the emotional high point of the FNF franchise james wan and series writer chris morgan managed to deftly blend the action the series has become known for and a story which serves as a fitting tribute and goodbye to both paul walker and his character brian connor number two snatch simon says although it's a guy Ritchie again uh this time with a budget he manages to carve out a voice of his own properly establishing his style that he's known for rather amazingly it has aged better and uh, in 20 years than his most recent film. It's just a shame about Brad Pitt's, Brad Pitt's accent. <laughs> and finally, at number one in the top 10 Jason Statham films, according to Simon Gibbons, Transporter 2. Takes the energy of the second half of the first film and keeps it up for the whole runtime. The film manages to be so consistently enjoyable that some of the more Luc Besson parts don't even bother me too much. The action and stunts are dumb and ridiculous in the best possible way whilst being neatly choreographed and composed. And Stath, as usual, gives it his all. Number one Jason Statham film is Transporter 2. Go ahead, yeah. Mark. Well, okay, so, so the two obvious errata there are Transporter 3 with the cliff the, the clifftop strip tease is one of the most brilliant moments in any Statham film. I know people have problems with Transporter 3, but I love it. For that, uh, for that section, where I think it's brilliant, and of course, the great omission here is Hummingbird, which is the you know it's the it's the Citizen Kane of the state of the state oeuvre, in as much as it's him you know doing all the stuff that he does, but also trying to put take everything up to the next level. It's not entirely um, successful, but I I think it, it's it's a real shame to leave that out of the top ten because I think Hummingbird was a really interesting film. Yes, and on the omissions, Gracie says Hummingbird left out the one time he actually stretches his acting muscles and it's excluded. Baffling. Ollie yeah. Joy says, big fan of the stuff. Amazed Hummingbird wasn't there. Misha John, I would have put the mechanic in there too. Mm -hmm. Al says, Homefront and Redemption should be on the list. Kev says, number one, it's crank. Anything below this can go in order. In any uh, order. Pango Ningen says, crank, but no crank two. That's your number one and two spot right there in reverse order, in my opinion. Crank two, high voltage, it's crank, but bigger, louder, and Stathamir. And includes the classic one-liner, chicken and broccoli, which as I haven't seen the film, I'm not sure that that <laughs> works for me. Anyway, if you want to do a top 10, then you you suggest this topic, but you, then you fill in the blanks, exactly, exactly as Simon Gibbons has been doing, which we are going to continue doing until we have a proper box office top 10 to bring you. Mark, what are you going to be reviewing uh, in the next section of our program. 
I'm going to be reviewing Alice, uh, How to Build a Girl and The Traitor. And we're going to be speaking to Lucy Lou in the next section of this program. This is Five Live. And welcome back. You're listening to Five Live. This is your daily dose of entertainment. The fuller version it will be available on the podcast very shortly once we're done and all the tape has been edited. Is that still what happens, Mark? I don't know. Is that That's what exactly they do? how it works? It's, it's exactly quarter in tape. We, we are still living in the uh, in the previous century. So Mark's under under the stairs. I'm in my back bedroom, and we've been joined fantastically I, from who knows where by Lucy Lou's, one of the stars in the new movie Stage Mother. Hello, Lucy. Hi, guys. Hi. I'm where? I'm calling from New York, actually. Are you okay? So, are you are you in your house there? Yes, I'm okay. in my apartment in New uh, York. And have you been there <laughs> like forever? I've been here for the whole time of the. You know, we started as the epicenter of the pandemic, and now we aren't, and we are in phase four, which is incredible. So, I, I feel very safe in New York, actually. So, I know that sounds bizarre, but. I, unfortunately, the rest of the country seems to be falling apart. <laughs> yes, yes, that's that, that's also the other part. That's the other part of the story. So, how was how was it for you when you were, you know, when you're in the, in the heart of the storm, as it were, and you and your son are there trying to just get through? It's this, you know, we've had the same experience all over the world. But how was it for you, Lucy? I mean, it was strange because New York is such a fast-paced city. It's 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 packed with people. Um, you know, it's a hub and it was, it looked like it was something from, it was a set and everyone had been cleared off and we were about to film something like a zombie movie because there was no one around. It was really strange. I mean, I took photos every day of, of uh, the street and from my window and just as time progressed, you could see that, you know, there were some people and then there was nobody because then we had a lockdown and then there was the marches and of course, there was looting and more marches, and then things started to sort of open up a little bit. I mean, I I love New York. I was born here, and I feel like you know the governor uh, really handled the situation very smart way, and so we were able to sort of understand how we open up safely. And if it's not safe, then we have to close back up and. You know, it's it's a lesson for everyone. It's a learning curve. It's not something that comes naturally for anybody. But luckily, you know, we had strict regulations. And so we kind of really were able to adhere to that and understand that it was a very serious situation. Um, I mean, unfortunately, things are not, did not really go the same way in, in other states. And you know, it's, it's it's really tragic that so many people are dying or being infected and that there's a lot of misinformation. Were you in the middle of some? Did you have to stop filming? Were you right in the middle of a project or, or not? No, I had finished um, my project. And so it was actually really good timing for me. I was just going to be home. And, you know, I have other projects going on that will be in Los Angeles. But right now, I'm really not on it. I mean, I know it sounds strange, but I'm not really on a timeline right now. I'm just being very, I'm sort of going with the flow because every day it's different. And so I'm not, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I get frustrated or, you know, annoyed that something's not happening. It, it, it's, you know, life is going to be different. Sure. And I think that's what we all have to face. So all the movies that we're reviewing at the moment, obviously were 
filmed a while back. How uh, we're talking about Stage Mother, which is uh, which is this new movie uh, of yours. You were one of the stars in in this. How how far back? Because it was isn't it Halifax? I think that you filmed this in. But it, yes, how, we shot it in Halifax, um, in in Canada. It was it was a great experience. I mean, I was shooting at the same time. I was shooting elementary, so I was flying back and forth between shooting the show in New York and then flying to Halifax to shoot the movie. And, you know, I don't know that that would happen again because, you know, probably you have to go into quarantine, but now it's a very different situation. But at the time, I I think I shot 21 days straight. (laughs) I did not stop uh, working, but, and traveling, but I had a great experience and I'd worked with the director, Tom Fitzgerald before who I adore. Um, and I love the character as well. And working with Jackie Weaver was wonderful. Yes. Okay. So, well, so we haven't explained the story yet of Stage Mother. You play Sienna. Jackie Weaver plays this fantastically named Maybelline Metcalf. Tell us, tell us the story of Stage Mother. Um, well, Jackie loses her, uh, her, she plays Maybelline and she loses her son. He dies and she has, has sort of been estranged from her and her husband have been estranged from him because uh, he told her that he was gay and they sort of, did not agree with his lifestyle and they lost touch. And then she finds out that he has, you know, left his club to her. And she then starts to get to know her son posthumously uh, through his friends and his partner. And it's kind of a comedy and a drama, just, um, you know, someone who loves her, her son so much, but sort of, you know, lost so much as well, not knowing him because of because she disagreed with, you know, his choices in his life. So, and and back home in her conservative town in Texas, I think she she's in charge of the church choir, and so therefore, when she suddenly inherits Pandora's box, which is this drag club which belonged to her son, as you say, she then gets to use her skills on on the drag queens there i think she says different songs same divas same wigs too so that's that's kind of at the heart of it yeah and that's what's wonderful i mean she she says this is you know this this club needs to be they needs to be amped up if you want it to be successful and so she you know she puts her heart and soul into it and then you know in that she also develops relationships and she realizes you know how what an incredible son she had and it you know you get to see sort of the how she participates and how she mothers all these other people that she's met, you know, uh, who were her son's family, essentially, because she wasn't there. Lucy, can I ask you, one of the things about Stage Mother is that it's it's opening here in uh, cinemas in the UK, because cinemas are starting to open up again. And uh, I just wondered whether, have you had any experience of going into the cinema recently? And do you think it's a movie that needs to be seen with an audience? Or do you think uh, it could be watched at home as well? Well, that's really wonderful that the theaters are opening over there. Um, I haven't been in a cinema for a long time, and I, I'm not sure how the state of their business is going to be for a while. You've seen how successful you know, streaming services have been in this time especially. And I mean, it would be fun to watch it with people, absolutely. But I think you can really enjoy it on your own as well, which, you know, which is the benefit of this movie. And I think in, in the in general, in the entertainment business, you know, you can choose. There's so much content now that you can really choose what it is that, you know, you might want to experiment with. And and I think if even if it's not really a topic or a subject that you might find interesting uh, on a regular basis, 
because you've paid for a stream, streaming service, you could sort of, you know, try it out and see how you like it. I think that's that's what's opening up things so much now because people have the time. I mean, sometimes you have the time. I think if you have a child, or, you know, and other responsibilities, it's much more difficult to, uh, to, to binge watch. But I think this movie would work either way. But I do think it, it's an audience pleaser. Do you think that people's uh, attitude to going to the cinema has fundamentally changed through lockdown? I mean, a lot of people have discovered streaming who, I mean, I, you know, I'm a, a, a terrible, you know, cineast and I going to the cinema is a really, really big thing. I haven't been to the cinema now for three and a half, four months, and it feels really weird, but I have got used to watching stuff on streaming services. Do you think there has been a fundamental shift with audiences? I think there has. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm guessing just based on, you know, the people that I know and, Based on you know, if you look at the the stocks for the streaming services, they have changed, and they've I think people have sort of been able to enjoy part of the lockdown, you know, or or to educate themselves during the lockdown through streaming services as well, because there's so many wonderful documentary series as well. I, I don't know, <laughs> I'm definitely not an expert at it. But I do think that cinema, you know, and, and the experience that we used to appreciate and that we, you know, looked forward to is definitely going to shift. Yeah. And that includes live theater and concerts as well as, you know, even graduations and proms and things that, you know, that, that are sort of a, a pastime, essentially, for everyone. When Spike um, Lee was on the program a couple of weeks back, he said he didn't, he didn't think he was going to see a sports game or going to a, a movie theatre f- until next year. So, you know, that's obviously the way he's thinking and I think a lot of people might be thinking something similar. Can I just ask you, just while we have you, Lucy, I saw a, a video that you were involved with. I think you're the lead person in it and you're talking uh, about, this is on YouTube, about a surge in hate crime uh, aimed at the Asian-American community and you're the first voice that comes up. And I just thought I'd ask you, about that has it been a real big story in the states i don't think it has been as big as it has not been highlighted as much but i think given the president's touting the virus being you know almost a joke like the kung flu or that it came from china or that china shipped it over here i mean the lack of fact checking and you know ignorant statements like that have, you know, billboarded uh, the the hate crimes against Asians. And I I find that to be, you know, unconscionable. I don't understand how you can, you know, assume things and then just continue to to tout that, that these are facts and to influence his basic group of supporters. I don't know. It's almost like when you see him out at these rallies he's doing a comedy show you know like he he kind of really gets off on hearing people respond to his comments and then he'll continue to push the topic to get a laugh and i don't think putting anyone in danger or at risk is something to laugh about and i find that to be shocking so, so you basically think the surge in hate crime is largely due to the fact that the president is talking about the China flu? Absolutely. He, is, he has the ability to quell, you know, 
the the violence um, and the, the the sort of perpetuating this sort of idea that it it that it was initiated in China and he doesn't and even now when he's doing these these talks he doesn't even include his own task force uh, like the doctors and the experts he he wants to be the center of attention and I find that to be bizarre when there people are dying every day from this virus um, and from the lack of enforcement uh, Lucy, we appreciate the time that you spent with us. Thank you very much indeed. Stage Mother is the is the new movie where you can see Lucy. What else? What what do we see you in next? Once hopefully we move into happier times, Lucy. What's the <laughs> next thing that's grabbing your attention? That's exciting you? Um, I'm going to be working on a, a comedy uh, with uh, with ABC. So we will see how that all turns out. Yeah. I mean, I could use. I know that I could use the laugh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, I think we definitely could. Lucy, uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much. Take care. Thank you. So thanks to Lucy Lou for joining us uh, from New York. As I mentioned, the movie is Stage Mother. Mark, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. Firstly, it was great to hear Lucy Lou talking so uh, frankly and honestly there. As far as Stage Mother is concerned. I think at best it's fine. Uh, its heart is in the right place. The thing that it isn't is breaking any form of new grounds. I mean, the story is, you know, Jackie Weaver discovers that her son has left to this bar in San Francisco. She goes there and then she she takes on the club because we, we learn from the backstory that the, the main cause of the estrangement is that her husband, who's a kind of, you know, stick in the mud, uh, straight arrow, he was the person who really had a problem with their son's lifestyle and she kind of learns to accept it. And you can, you know, you could write on the back of a, a, a box of matches the plot and, and the way everything's going. And it was interesting watching this, I think, there are there there are many predecessors to this. You know, you think of films you know, back in the nineties, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, Two One for Three, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. So it's not breaking any new ground. What it's doing is uh, just you know giving us a scenario that we can see is going to play out very straightforwardly. And then it's resting almost entirely on the strength of the performances. Um, Lucy Liu is very good, although she's not in the movie a whole bunch. Jackie Weaver is carrying the movie on her shoulders. And Jackie Weaver is is terrific. And it, you really feel like the movie needs somebody like Jackie Weaver to pull it all together because what it is doing, although I think its heart is absolutely in the right place, it felt kind of uh, safe to me. It's you know from a script by Brad Hennig, but you uh, you can tell exactly where it's going. So, Jackie Weaver, who was you know Oscar nominated um, uh, for Animal Kingdom, Silver Linings Playbook, she is an absolute uh, force of nature on screen, and everything that the film has going for it is in the performances. It's it's in her performance. It's in Lucy Liu's performance. It's not really in the in the screenwriting, or indeed the direction because there's nothing about the film itself that leaps out at me. So yes, it's good hearted. It's also pretty safe kind of bordering on the bland. And the best thing about it, I mean, for example, if you compare it to a film like you don't know me, which is the documentary about showgirls that has a lot more to say about drag culture and the way in which drag culture is interesting and radical and transformative, particularly in relation to showgirls. That I think is a much edgier film than this is. This is, this wants to play it safe right down the line mainstream. And that's what it does. The trouble is though, you know, Saying a movie, its heart is in the right place. It's, yeah, it's kind of not good. I, we could make a movie, his heart is in the right place, but that's, that's not enough. I think the main, one of the issues is the drag show that they do. Oh, and by the way, 
one of the one of the drag queens is called Joan of Arkansas, which is great. Oh, that's a good pun. Tequila Mockingbird, Cherry yeah. Poppins, and Dusty Muffin. These are the these are the drag queens, you know. So I thought that I thought that was funny. But the show that they do, the final kind of we've saved the club, and here's the show. I didn't. It wasn't very good. Yeah. Well, no, thanks I, for doing I, that plot spoiler there, Simon. Although, as I said, if you didn't see the end coming, you weren't well, watching. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. The thing is, I think it's one of those cases in which it's not a plot spoiler because there is nothing to spoil. I mean, there are a couple of, uh, you know, uh, funny gags. The the, the the line, which is in the trailer, when they're singing Amazing Grace, and she says, okay, well, that was neither amazing nor graceful. I think that's, you know, that's quite funny. But no, I agree with you. I think it needs to be a lot sharper uh, and a lot a lot more adventurous and it isn't those things but so you know applaud it's the performers for for giving it their best the film itself is at best okay okay so that's stage mother now before we do our next section of lockdown correspondence clearly we're not in lockdown some people still are uh, shielding until the 31st but we're still going to carry on doing lockdown correspondence because the stat here is uh, box office in the uk is down 99 percent on this time where it was Mm-hmm. last year so yeah essentially most people overwhelmingly are still consuming their movies in a kind of a lockdown frame of mind so we're watching movies via streaming services uh, so it i think it's fair to carry on calling well so we'll call them lockdown correspondents even though people are going out yes. to work is that fair mark yeah, I think that's fair. yes i think it's absolutely fair i think it makes perfect sense okay so uh once you've seen something whether you like it or whether you don't like it just send it in a pithy review and email it to mayo at bbc.co.uk here's jude in papakura in new zealand and she's watched the cornetto trilogy again really love Shaun of the dead every time and hot fuzz is just brilliant but there's something about the world's end that doesn't quite come up to par um, I think we spend half of the movie getting to know Gary King and he's just not that likeable a character. And then the second half of the movie, it all goes a bit bonkers. Shame it's not quite up to scratch, but I still enjoy watching all three movies. Good times. There you go. Yeah. Thank you, Jude. I mean, I kind of, I broadly agree with that in terms of the order. Although I remember when I first saw Hot Fuzz, I didn't completely love it. But since then, I've seen Hot Fuzz more than I've seen um, Shaun of the Dead. And I just love Hot Fuzz. It is the most endlessly quotable film. It is just, I'm not, I'm not going to do it because I've done it enough, but it's just brilliant. That's Jude in New Zealand. Next up, uh, Steph Gooch. Just finished watching The Green Mile. Wasn't sure what to expect with a Tom Hanks prison film, but it definitely wasn't that. Really good. Really recommend it. It's from your favourite author. King. Yeah, Stephen King. Well, he's not my favourite author, but he does some some of his books do make fabulous movies, and some of them don't. But anyway, I haven't seen Green Mile for a, a long time. It, my memory of it is that after Shawshank, it's something of a disappointment. But it it has it has moments in it that are impressive, and it has some great performances. But it's not Shawshank Redemption, which of course was based on a short story or a novella, as some people call it. And quite often, the best stuff comes from novellas. Colin is in Brighton. Just finished Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Uh, it was amazing the way that the film moved like a, a ballet. It had me clenching everything, white knuckle, uh, one minute, and then the next crying my eyes out. It's beautiful, relatable, and uh, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I think Interstellar is one of those films that you have to see on a really massive screen in order to, because it is a cinematic experience. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I know. But that is the thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it is a film that's made to be projected onto a screen the size of France, um, as opposed to watch the time. <laughs> yeah, and should have finished where, where Matthew yes, exactly. says, 
what happens next or something like that. Yeah. But unfortunately then shows you didn't what everything. It's all fine. You can think of, you know, thing. And then there's the bit with the, with the daughter and then bye. And yeah, exactly. But still, I think as soon as Colin started, the scene in my head was Matthew McConaughey saying goodbye to his daughter, driving away and then, and, and, and then cut and he's in the, he's in the rocket taking yeah. off. Just it's a fantastic. Genius. Yeah. That is a brilliant sequence. cut. Yeah. Next up, Jude is in Leicester and Jude has been watching Lynn and Lucy. This was an uncomfortable journey into the story of ordinary lives, but people facing massive problems. For me, it shone a light on female friendship and explored how we bond and how we break those bonds. And the haircutting scene for me was one of the most excruciating depictions of shame that I've seen in a film. So it's challenging to watch, but brilliant performances. So Lena Lucy came out a couple of weeks ago, Mark, is that right? Yeah, and I loved it. That The thing about the haircutting scene, and shame is the key word, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's exactly what it's about. And worth bearing in mind, once again, that's Roxanne Scrimshaw's first ever role acting. She was cast through, um, you know, through, through Facebook, as it happens, and she's, just astonishing in that film it's a, i think it's a really really powerful film and i'd recommend it to everybody everybody's on bfi player and i think maybe some other places as well but bfi player is the place to see it and our last lockdown correspondent this week is monica rook i've just rekindled my love affair with steve mcqueen in the mm-hmm. thomas crown affair oh, he was so gorgeous <laughs> for me the film maintained its stylish 60s story the way faye dunaway used those long Luscious lashes to lure and land Thomas was a lesson in the art of seduction. Mm, must take up chess again. Now I, my, I'm imagining Monica there with a cigarette in a long holder. <laughs> and a martini. And, well, a martini or a very sophisticated sherry, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I would. Yes. I, I think Monica should actually have a weekly film review show because I would listen to that. Um, can I tell you my interesting bit of trivia? Well, it depends how interesting, and I'll be the judge of how interesting it is. Faye Dunaway is banned from one of the pubs around here. I won't explain any further, ex- other than to say the words Ken Russell. What? Uh, I can't. Well, I'll. I'll tell you off air. But you know, there is a pub in the New Forest in which Faye Dunaway shall not tread again. Heaven knows what went on. Anyway, put it in your memoir. Uh, review something for us. Okay, so um, new movie, which is available on selected streaming services, uh, Alice, which is directed by uh, Josephine McCarris, who is an Australian uh, writer-director, although the film itself is in French, uh, set in Paris. Emily Piponier is a young woman with a child and this apparently, uh, you know, loving, caring partner, husband, who seems to be really fabulous. And then one day he goes out to work and he doesn't come back again. She can't get him on her mobile phone. She doesn't know what's happened to him. Then she starts getting messages from the bank because all her bank cards stop working. She goes into the bank. All her money has gone. All the money that she invested in the place that they live in has all gone. And it turns out that he has been spending all his money and her money at very high class escort agencies. And he's completely disappeared. She is about to have her house repossessed. So she ends up turning to the very escort agencies that she discovers is where her lying rat bag cheating partner has been spending all their money and discovers a new line of work. And wouldn't you know it, this new line of work actually turns out to be 
nothing like as terrible as she thought, and I'll be liberating her. Here's, here's the thing. There is a certain strain of French cinema. Uh, I said this is a French movie. It's a you know Australian writer director, which is in the habit of looking with rose tinted glasses upon sex work, and I think that is one of the elements about this film, which is kind of, you know, it it never really gets under the skin of how that work may be may be difficult or maybe tough or you know any of the really dark stuff about it it is content to play it at a fairly surface level what raises it above the level of mere cliche is that in the opening sequences there is a very good depiction of somebody whose life suddenly falls apart for nothing that that they knew they didn't see it coming at all one minute uh, you know, our heroine has this, you know, functional life with a child and a partner and all this stuff. And the next minute it is completely torn out from under her feet. And the scenes in which she discovers that her husband has taken all their money and what her husband has actually been doing are absolutely brilliant. And there are some sequences later on in which we discover more about the husband. And I think those scenes are played very well. There are good performances. Emily Piponier is terrific in the lead role. Martin Swaby, who is the who plays the husband, is uncomfortably believable as the perfect partner who then turns out to be um, a loathsome creep. As I said, the, the film has been a prize winner. It's been very well received. Um, I, I think that it, it, it has a kind of glossy version of the trade to which uh, our heroine turns. And I think that kind of slightly undermines the, the seriousness of some of the other stuff in it, because it is absolutely a story of female empowerment. It is a story about somebody taking control of their own life. I just, there's certain sections of it that I didn't buy into, but I think it's got good performances and there are moments in it particularly that opening that opening act when her life falls apart and she discovers she's going to have conversations with the bank and the bank manager is saying well you're basically as liable as your husband because your names are your names on the accounts I thought all that stuff was done really well and I thought the depiction of the husband who has got this this whole other life that he's completely kept from her and then you know later on the sort of attempts at justification. I thought though that stuff was done very well. It's called uh, Alice and it's available on selected digital uh, services. Okay, in our final half hour, I know there's going to be TV movies of the week. What are the remaining movies for you to pronounce on, Professor? How to Build a Girl, uh, The Traitor, St. Francis, and Parasite is back in a black and white edition. I imagine it'll be movie of the week already, even though we're some way from picking that. So this is Five Live and we'll be back after the latest news and sport. Thank you. Welcome back. This is the final part of your Wittertainment special with extra bits and pieces available on the podcast very shortly. Just a reminder, there is no point in texting or emailing just now because we're elsewhere concentrating on other things. But emails are still at the heart of the programme and they're all read and you send them to mail at bbc.co.uk. If you just joined us, you miss Lucy Lou uh, talking about her new movie, Stage Mother, but mainly talking about how she blames President Trump for the violence against Asian Americans, which was a quite startling moment in the interview, I thought. Uh, you can see that um, video with her and lots of other actors uh, on YouTube. So in this half hour, we've got lots to get through, including TV movies of the week. What else is new and where can we see it, Mark? Okay, so uh, How to Build a Girl, which is uh, on Amazon. This is a uh, screen written by Catelyn Moran f- uh, from her autobiographically inspired bestseller. Uh, Beanie Feldstein is Johanna Morrigan, who is a uh, studious mid-90s uh, school kid in Wolverhampton, who is clearly bursting with talent, but is finding herself completely constrained by her surroundings. She has dreams of becoming a writer. She has a strange moment on local television in which she wins a poetry competition. It all goes very, very badly. But then... She sees an an advert for hip young gunslingers in the music press 
and she sends them a review of the Annie soundtrack, and then she gets uh, asked for an interview. She doesn't realise that in being get in being asked for, for the interview, it's basically because they can't believe that a sixteen year old girl has reviewed the Annie soundtrack uh, and didn't mean it as a joke. So she goes down to London to that there London, where she uh, goes into the offices and discovers that she isn't what they want. Here's a clip. Oh, just seventeen's on the twenty third floor, love. Uh, thank you, but no. <laughs> I'm Johanna Morrigan. I have an interview for the job. Hot young. Gunsling. All right, there goes a tenner. Andy, you win. Sorry, I didn't think you were real, love. What? What well, sixteen-year-old girl was doing the soundtrack to Annie. I just thought it was the, the NME winding us up. But did you think my writing was good? Yeah, it was funny. It made us laugh, but it's not really us. So I go. I guess. Here. Come a long way. Have a free T-shirt. So she's treated completely patronisingly. However, she ends up writing for them, and her writing is all completely enthusiastic about how much she she loves this music. And she discovers that actually that doesn't sell. What sells is snarky, you know, bitter criticism. So she reinvents herself as Dolly Wilde, who is this kind of, you know, bad girl with red hair and this crazy hat who wins awards for writing the the kind of reviews that make you feared and famous, but actually don't fulfill her. Now, I I went into this kind of slightly nervous about it because I'm a, a fan of Catelyn Moran's and uh, and I you know I wanted the movie to work and I wasn't entirely certain whether Beanie Felstein could uh, get the Wolverhampton accent and here's what I think about it. Firstly, I think it's really good fun. Um, it has some of the the charm and the joy of Gorinda Charter's Blinded by the Light, which you know was um, uh, adapted from Sofras Manzor's um, uh, uh, memoir, and I thought that was a that was a really enjoyable and lovely film it was full of kind of positivity and hope and it actually didn't do as well as perhaps it should have done in the case of this the film of how to be how to build a girl has got this kind of rough and ready energy that's very very hard to resist it has this kind of uh this sort of magical edge to it when the pictures on her wall of her a wall of heroes all talk to her and give her advice there's a moment when somebody steps out of a poster in the bus shelter in the rain so it's kind of got one foot in the world of fantasia but at its heart is a story as i said autobiographically inspired of somebody from uh you know um a working class background who goes to London to try and find work, discovers that actually they, you know, they are a brilliant writer, but also that it is easier to sell negativity than positivity, but then wonders whether that is actually what they want to do with their life. And I have to confess that, you know, as somebody I've, you know, I understand this. I understand that thing about the anxiety about realizing that you've you've kind of become celebrated for being nasty about things rather than being celebrated for for praising things. I mean, I wrote m- much less uh, well than Catelyn Moran about this in, in in a book that I wrote some time ago about saying, you know, why is it that people only remember the bad reviews? And the reason is because negativity sells and positivity is a much harder thing. And one of the things I really like about How to Build a Girl is it's a film that manages to sell a positive message and it isn't ashamed to do it. Um, I think that particularly at the moment, uh, you know, perhaps more than ever, what we really need are films that say, you know, firstly, go for it. Secondly, you know, if you, there's a line which is, you know, what do you do when you build yourself and you discover that you built yourself out of all the wrong bits? Well, you rip it up and start again. And there is 
that message goes all the way through the film. Yes, it's rough and ready around the edges. There's some great supporting performances, not least from Paddy Constantine. I think Beanie Felstein is actually really, really great in the lead. She wins you over. You go with her on this adventure. Um, and for all the kind of the rough and readiness, which I actually like, what sees the, the film through is that it has this positive energy to it it has this kind of uplifting message which is believe in yourself go for it don't let other people tell you that you can't do it and also don't be ashamed of of liking stuff you know beneath it all is the fact that Catelyn Moran has got a really fantastic turn of phrase and uh you know she she does mix you know erudition with deflation to laugh out loud effect and I I'd say that I, I I really enjoyed it I've now seen it a couple of times in fact second time round I enjoyed it even more because I was no longer anxious about whether or not it would manage to capture that stuff uh, on screen. So anyway, How to Build a Girl, uh, it's available on Amazon and I thoroughly recommend it. Excellent. Uh, maybe it's a candidate for Movie of the Week. We will find out just before the news. Uh, OK, so that's How to Build a Girl. What else is it? And that, is, that, is that the movies? No, that's uh, available oh, okay. to, to, to watch online at Amazon. OK, all right. What else have we got? Well, The Traitor, which is available both uh, online and in cinemas, so there's a virtual release and a theatrical release, uh, Il Traditore, The Traitor, which is a sort of sprawling uh, drama about Tommaso Buscetta, who was a member of the Sicilian Mafia, who turned informant and then you know, shed light on the, on the Cosa Nostra. This was in competition at Cannes. It was also uh, Italy's submission for the, um, it's now called International Feature, Oscar, isn't it? It wasn't nominated, but it was their submission at the 92nd uh, Academy Awards. It's a big, sprawling, true-life crime drama. The story itself is interesting about somebody, you know, turning from the dark side to, in inverted commas, the light. So actually, it's the best scenes, I think, are between uh, Buscetta and uh, Judge Falcone, when there is this kind of strange grudging respect between the two two characters from different sides of the law. There's also this kind of weird, you know, courtroom scenes in which evidence is being given with mafiosi behind bars looking onto the courtroom, jeering and, and gesturing and all that sort of stuff. It kind of sounds like sort of strange, absurd theatre, but as I said, the, the film is, you know, based on a on a true story uh, for me it it doesn't it's not as cinematic as i know this is the obvious example but it's not like goodfellas which takes a true story and just barrels along and makes you think of it as a piece of cinema when you're watching goodfellas you don't think of it as a true life crime drama you think of it as a martin scorsese film um so it's fine it's not perfect uh but it's it's kind of okay i think there are times in it in which it felt like it it felt like it was sprawling like a tv miniseries when in fact it could it could well have been cut down but there are there are interesting bits in it not least between you know the the mobster and the judge who find a kind of common ground that i thought was the most interesting stuff where can I uh, where can I catch the traitor? Just that is both me. in theatres and yes. in what's been called a virtual theatrical release, meaning you can also you can also watch it online. Okay, so uh, we have uh, new movies which we've done in this half hour: How to Build a Girl. We've had the traitor. There's a uh, we've got another movie in just a second. We've got the parasite black and white edition that could well be movie of the week. We've got TV movies of the week in just a second. What else are you going to tell us about, Mark? So very quickly, I mentioned this last week, Strasbourg 1518, um, which is the Jonathan Glazer short, 10 minutes long, premiered uh, on BBC. It's now on iPlayer, made uh, in collaboration with Art Angel and Sadler's Wells, Nine Dancers, 10 minutes, 
music by Mika Levy, whose work I love. So it's a series of vignettes of dancers alone in rooms. This was, you know, made during lockdown. It's about lockdown. It begins with a voice asking, you know, how are you? And the answer seems to be bouncing off the rails is how we are. Um, I talked recently about The Fall, which is the film that uh, the short film that Glazer made about a, a lynching, which also premiered on television. This apparently, I know this only because I looked it up, is inspired by a mass hysteria um, sort of uh, outbreak in, in, in Strasbourg in 1518 in which people started communal dancing. And it, watching it made me think of those things like the possession trances of the 16th and 17th century. And obviously I've, you know, I've written a lot about the devils over the years and those kind of mass, in inverted commas, possession scenes of the nuns being, you know, it, it com- you know overtaken by, in their mind, demonic spirits. At times, the contortions of some of the dancers, I mean, this is just what I thought of it. At times, I thought the contortions of some of the dancers reminded me of the exorcism of Emily Rose or that bit in Amityville of Possession when somebody gets stuck on the ceiling. In fact, there's one sequence in which I thought it was almost going to turn into, you know, that Fred Astaire thing from uh is it royal wedding when he when the, the room spins around and he ends up dancing on the ceiling it's repetitive chores hand washing dressing undressing it sometimes it looks like they're, they're being thrown around the room by unseen forces sometimes it looks like they're being tortured or interrogated i mean it 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 made me feel slightly panicked watching it and i'll say this i've said this before there is something about the medium of dance i don't know how to describe it really but dance does affect me on a primal level, although I don't understand it. And I think this film really taps into that. And I, as I said, it's on iPlayer. It's called uh, Strasbourg 1518. It's really well worth watching, but it's, it's not a relaxing 10 minutes by any means. Is that the shortest thing you've ever reviewed? I think I've reviewed th- no, no. We've done, you know, well done, you, haven't we? We've done. Yeah, three I minutes. mean, apart from apart from the well done news, which is kind of slightly <laughs> exceptional, but you know, in the old days, something that was ten minutes would not be considered worthy of, uh, not worthy, but it wouldn't be appropriate it's, to review. It's Jonathan, on a movie. it's Jonathan Glazer. It's Mika Levy. It's uh, you know, it's uh, and anyway, as we've all discovered, television, cinema. Hey, you know what? Ebony and Ivory, they just they live together in harmony. Side by side on your piano keyboard. Oh, Lord, why can't we? When you talk about dancing on the ceiling, I thought of making a Lionel Richie comment. Yeah, yeah, I know, you didn't. Lionel Richie. I held back. I have a cup which has got a picture of Lionel Richie which says, hello, is it tea you're looking for? That's very good. I like that. That's, that is the funny, that's the that's the most hilarious moment on this <laughs> hil- hilarity special, it is, it really is. <laughs> which we're bringing to you. Anyway, it's TV movie of the week time, which is a very exciting moment. This is where we post the best movies on subscription free television yeah. uh, on our various social bits and pieces at Wintertainment. Uh, Mark is now going to pick six from the list of 12. OK, so this week's offerings include for a few dollars more, Zootropolis, The Post, Sicario and Cold War. Well, all those then. Okay, we move on. Martin (laughs) says, Cold War is utterly fabulous. Another one of those jump the one-inch barrier and you'll be rewarded films. Uh, Wally says, it's hard to look beyond for a few dollars more. On a trip to Spain, my wife and I watched the whole thing in Spanish, despite neither of us actually being able to speak any word of Spanish. Uh, Lee Galvin says, Cold War is undoubtedly brilliant and arguably the better film, but I cannot not choose Zootropolis when it's an option. Does Cold War have a sexy singing gazelle voiced by Shakira? No, it doesn't. There you go. (laughs) Alan Smith. That's a good list this week. Sorry. That's just very funny. The hilarity just never stops. It never does. Um, 
Alan Smith, there's a good, that's a good list. Zootropolis was as unexpectedly brilliant as Big Hero 6 was unexpectedly disappointing. What? I love that. Having said that, The Shining and the Post are on there as well. I thought that was terrific. In fact, the first half was brilliant, then the second half was a little bit disappointing, but very, very funny. Um, And Maddie says, Zootopia, as it is in Oz, is a firm favourite. The Sloths were a stroke of genius. Mr Big and his henchmen sending up the Godfather, then at the mother's group. We mums had a wide-ranging conversation about what is so sexy about the dancing tigers at the end. Uh, Anyway, there (laughs) some of your thoughts, but what are Mark's thoughts? That's the thing. What are our TV movies of the week? Here comes the list. Okay, so for a few dollars more, for obvious reasons, um, that is uh, 20 past 11 tonight, uh, Friday. If you're listening on Friday, if you're listening on Saturday, it was on BBC Two, you missed it already. What um, if I'm listening L- on Tuesday? Yeah, well then, uh, maybe on iPlayer? I'm not quite sure how that works, but I think so. Um, L, the Paul Verhoeven film, which is 5 to 1 in the morning on Saturday on Film 4 with an absolutely brilliant score by uh, Anne Dudley. Obviously, um, I was referring to Morricone before. The Post, which I know you love as well, it's at a quarter past nine in the evening on Saturday, tomorrow on Channel 4. And, you know, worth mentioning because, you know, as somebody who has worked in, you know, in print journalism, I do think The Post did a really good job of capturing that milieu. And you can run it as a double bill that goes straight into the beginning of All the President's Men. Uh, the Salesman, the Asghar Fahadi, is on at 10 past midnight on Monday. So that's Sunday night into Monday morning on BBC Two. And it's terrific. Sicario, obviously, uh, Saturday tomorrow on Channel 4 at 25 to midnight. And then I'm going to do a Pavel Pavlikovsky double bill of uh, Ida and Cold War. Ida is on a quarter to 11 at night on Tuesday on Film 4. Cold War is on 9 at night on Wednesday on Film 4. Okay, so they're the good ones. Here come the TV movies of the week. So bad, they're actually bad. The worst movies on TV. In the shortlist, Are We Done Yet? Kickbox, Vengeance, Straw Dogs and Gothica. So probably those. Judy and Gloucester, the Straw Dogs remake wasn't as bad as everyone makes out. At least the director didn't up the ante on the sex and violence. It's just utterly pointless. But as I say, yes. everyone who moans about remakes, I say this in capital letters, nobody took the original away. Thank you, Jude. Nexus 9, I saw Gothica at the cinema. I have no recollection of one single thing that happened in it. Gothica is spelled with a K, obviously. Jack Field, also spelled with a K. Gothica is the worst movie of all time. Ellie in Macclesfield, hard to believe that Matthew Kasovitz directed La Haine and Gothica, a very shoddy B-movie, which is, if memory serves, the same plot as What Lies Beneath from three years earlier. Connor Brown says, Gothica was rubbish. Thanks for your analysis, Connor. Lucy in Bristol, are we done yet? Joins the long line of films that review themselves via the title. As commercial cash grab sequels go, this one is one of the worst will-this-do monstrosities of the last 20 years. And Adam says, I think it's Love Actually. But he's just saying that to annoy Mark. Just to be difficult. What are the TV movies of the week that are so bad they're bad? Well, I'm going to go for Are We Done Yet? Because it is the sequel to Are We There Yet? Which was nominally a remake of uh, Mr. Blanding's Bills' Dream House. And it was, you know, whatever that phrase in that last email was, just completely cynical, will this do? That should, that it actually should have been called that. Um, I remember when it, there was when the DVD came out, the, the extras included a three-minute gag reel. And I remember thinking three minutes more gags than there are in the film. You know, you know the hilarity that we've had in the show so far? Yes. By talking about are we done yet? We're now into negative hilarity because it oh, works dear. like antimatter. It sucks hilarity into How can it. I avoid that? You can avoid it at twenty five past twelve in the afternoon on Saturday on guess what, Simon? Five star? Five star. 
There you go. How did I know that? Uh, and it's, it's, it's worth saying, it's worth saying that will, will this do question mark? As a, it's a private eye gag, isn't it? Basically, it's always put oh, in yeah. copy from a rubbish journalist who just That's writes, right. will this do? And then Ed will say, no, you're fired yeah. or something yeah. like that. Exactly, exactly. And it is, so I mean, anyone who's ever filed sloppy copy knows exactly what the phrase, will this do, means. I think they should, don't you think sloppy copy's got a good name for a, for a novel? <laughs> I think I'll write that one. Like for a punk band. <laughs> yeah, they could, yeah, okay, that's very good. Okay, that's our copyright. That's un- you decide to turn that into a novel, Simon, you can have that one for free. So, you know, just thanks, so you know. Okay? Thanks, thanks very much. Okay. So they're the TV movies of the week. We still got some new stuff uh, that's out, and Mark will explain. Yes. So um, Saint Francis, which was going to open theatrically a couple of weeks ago, then didn't because the cinema reopenings were delayed because you know everything is kind of strange and disorganised at the moment because of COVID. Anyway, this is um, written by and starring Kelly O'Sullivan, and I, I'll say from the beginning, I I loved it. It's uh, it's really a story about self-determination, but dressed up as a kind of ditzy, bittersweet comedy about midlife disappointment. And the thing I really loved about it, it is it is a film that deals with a number of subjects that mainstream cinema would deem to be taboo, like menstruation and abortion and birth control and postnatal depression, all things which are, you know, part of everyday life, but which for some reason mainstream cinema quite often thinks, oh no, we can't we can't go anywhere near that. So um our, our, our central character, played by Sullivan herself, um, is played by Kelly O'Sullivan, is uh, we first meet her at a party, she's called Bridget, and um, we discover that she is disillusioned with her life. She's a 34-year-old uh, waitress whose life isn't going anywhere. Then she gets pregnant uh, uh, unintentionally at around the same time that fate conspires to offer her a new job, nannying for a six-year-old. And so these two things are going on in her life at the same time. One of them is she's offered the job of nannying, the other is that she's dealing with a pregnancy when she doesn't want to be pregnant. Here's a clip. I'm for sure getting rid of it. Okay. We could talk about other options. No. Thanks. Yeah, sure. Do you think maybe your birth control like malfunctioned? Or I'm not on birth control. You're not? No. <laughs> God, I honestly thought I couldn't even get... Why did you think that? Because it's never happened before. I hear it. I hear that, how that sounds. I'll go with you when you go. Okay. And I'll pay for it. We'll split it. So you can hear from that, the film has a kind of, you know, it's very naturalistic dialogue, handheld cinematography by uh, Nate Hertzeller, which kind of gives us the impression that we're, we're eavesdropping on these characters. And then what happens is that initially she she doesn't think that she's somebody who is you know qualified well she isn't somebody who's qualified to be a nanny and the six-year-old that she takes on the care of is quite a, a challenging child whose uh, parents um are dealing with the fact that they have a new baby on the way and you know and then arrives and that they are exhausted by the presence of a new baby so she has to then bond with francis which kind of you know relates to the saint francis of the title there's there's, there's one absolutely lovely scene in which bridget and francis go into a church and they talk in a confession booth and francis plays the role of god and uh, bridget confesses to her, which is a, which is a, a really marvelous scene 
What I what I really liked about this one, firstly, I thought it was really well written and really well played. It's got a brilliant sense of the absurdity of life, but also of the you know the highs and lows and you know the painful areas of life. The there is a a, a very sort of well observed portrait of uh, Francis's parents, who are a lesbian couple, one of whom is sort of quite high achieving, the other of whom is quite religious and is dealing with uh, with postnatal depression. And it's got a really a really kind of authentic portrait of that relationship. Also, what we discover about Bridget is that, you know, Bridget herself feels becalmed, but she's also somebody who wants and needs to take control of her life. But what she needs is some kind of, you know, some driving affirmative force to, you know, to make her take the next step in her life and you know and move on from being as i said which she said at the beginning that you know she's a 34 year old waitress there is a fantastic small but a key performance by jim Trufrost, who is this excruciating guitar teacher he's this kind of guitar guru who it's it's wonderful it's a really sort of funny toe cutting it's not quite a cameo because it's a bigger role than that but it's the details that are so great i mean i was i know you watched this as well simon mckenna cole's uh, tv series i made destroy you and one of the things that's great about we did it on the is, telly we did it on the telly together exactly on uh Kermit and mayo's uh home entertainment service which incidentally has now fallen off iplayer and i think they need to rectify that straight away yes what that i was really impressed by how much that dealt with again subjects that you know quite often mainstream television doesn't think is you know stuff that you perhaps should be dealing with but it does it in a way that's so casual that you don't even notice it's happening for me what saint francis does does is that it offers a genuine authentic three-dimensional portrait of a real life real lives that we can believe in and it does so in a way which is very radical in the same way as Eliza Hitman's um, Never Really, Sometimes Always, which again, we reviewed on uh, Kermit and Mayer's uh, Home Entertainment Service, which apparently has dropped off iPlayer. And I think they need to do something no, about that. No, we need to do that immediately. And it all leads up to this moment that, that when there is a kind of moment in which Bridget sort of says everything that she's thinking, but it's so beautifully done because it becomes almost a throwaway comedic gag. I love this film. I thought it was great. I thought it was honest and truthful and funny and smart and completely believable and also really kind of quietly radical in that it was doing all these things that were kind of really sort of often you say, no, that, that stuff is out of bounds and doing it in okay. a way that seems so natural that you barely noticed it. It's right. really well, well, we know what the movie of the week is going to be. You've got 30 seconds to talk us through the black and white parasite. Bong Joon-ho has the reversion parasite in black and white. Apparently, according to the Hollywood Reporter, actually the black and white version existed before the color version. Uh, Bong said, director Bong said that in his mind, um, the, the the characters seem more poignant because what happens is that the area, the shades of grey become much more shades of grey. I think watching it, I mean, I love Parasite anyway. Bong Joon-ho also did a black and white version of Mother. But the black and white version of this, what it does is, by taking the colour out of it, it draws attention to the location so that you notice the sort of scuzzy matte surfaces of the lower class family's house and then the shiny, reflective, impersonal surfaces of the you know rich and, and wealthy house. To be honest with you, I love Parasite in any version. I thought it was an interesting addendum to the original version. It gives it a kind of noirish edge. Um, okay. He also said quite funnily that he thought that if, if something was in black and white, it became a classic. You know what, Director Bong? It's a classic anyway. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Mark, what is your film of the week? St. Francis. 
We'll be back next week. Our special guest will be Gemma Arterton. Thank you very much indeed for listening. This is Five Live. Well, that was a that was a packed show, really. Um, that was a packed show. We we only just managed to get everything in. Our live radio audience have now left us, which means that we just have the uh, the hardcore, the aficionado. They haven't left us. We've left them, Simon. No, no, indeed, they've left us. They no, they haven't because they because they were listening to the show and then the show stopped. We are now carrying on, obviously, for the cognoscenti. Yes. Many people poo poo Australian table wine. This is a pity. That's whenever I hear the word cognoscenti, because because he says, you know, appeals not only to the cognoscenti, but also to the, you know, whatever it is. Not only to, no, we... it appeals, appeals not only to the Australian palate, but also to the cognoscenti. Very good. Well, that's, that's quite in keeping with our hilarity episode. Uh, I think maybe there should be a theme. This isn't a wine for drinking. It's a wine for laying down and avoiding. There you go. That's another hilarious moment. So... <laughs> If this has been the hilarity episode, I wonder what theme. Maybe people could suggest a theme for next for the next podcast. The morose, is, somber episode. Yeah, I think. How about the um, gratuitous plug uh, edition? <laughs> Just reach you can hold up anything because th- this film doesn't get uh, doesn't get shown now. No, that's fine. Okay, in that case, let's see how far I can get before before birdsong ensues. Joe was. Do you know what I'm afraid of? Because we've had, received no editorial guidelines in the last ninety. Solid Paul's fallen asleep. Either that, or he's just going to take everything out, which will mean that the hilarity. Should we not give episode... him? Should we, just, should we just not give him anything else? Right. Simon Paul. Are you are you there? If if you're if you are there, can you be heard on the recording if you talk to us? Yes. Yes, fine. You are not to simply cut out everything that we just did. Okay? <laughs> I want you to agree that you're going to leave it in leave in I mean you can cut round it and you can cut the the you know the actionable bits out, but you can't cut the whole thing out, okay? Well, look, every editorial decision the team and I make about the program is always in the best interests of the program. So you can pass in the buck, the team no. and I, I'm no. sorry, I would have left I it am in. Aware, I am aware of the grass. I am. Yes. <laughs> I personally would have left yes, it I, in. Unfortunately, I, evil Hannah, it was her who decided to remove the piece. I can only Oh, imagine. Hannah's not here this week. It'll be Joe. It'll be Joe evil Joe. Right? Well, no, Joe, Joe's fine. Joe will be absolutely fine. Joe, if you're listening to this, here's the thing, because I know you'll be doing the editing. Leave this in, all right? Or some of it. Because it all is, after it. all, the hilarity episode, and all of this will be loved by everyone, and they find it hilarious. <laughs> I, I would just like to draw your attention. All right, that's enough. You've, had it. You've been on enough. You've been on enough. Back off. Mute yourself. You're not. You're... Goodbye. Just fade him out. <laughs> Who does he think he is? I haven't got controls. You've got controls. I I haven't haven't got... You've got a mixing desk in front of you. I haven't got that. I've literally got my laptop, right? I've got my laptop balanced on a book of rejected film scores that Dave Norris gave to me. Um, Dave and Julie both gave me for, for, I think, for a birthday. And propped on the cardboard box that a thing of Akashi whiskey came in. And everything... Look, I'll show you. Every single thing is now held together with gaffer tape and strip. Look, even that bit's falling off. Look, just gaffer tape everywhere. Astonishing. Genuinely Everywhere astonishing. you look, it's gaffer tape. 
And mm. I've got this thing here, right? Right. This is a bit of gaffer tape. And you know what I do with this? When we finish doing this, that we're talking to each other, I go like that, and I, I stick it over the camera. And do you know why oh, yeah, I do yeah. that? Yeah, because they're all because the man is spying. Because the man is spying on me. And do you know how I know the man is spying on me? Because you're because you're a paranoid delusionist. Well, yes, but also because uh, what's the guy called? What's his Santa name? Claus? The devil, <laughs> Richard Nixon, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, him! What well, you should have said, Mark Zuckerberg. There was a there was an interview with Mark Zuckerberg in which he he had a piece of tape over his. And I thought, if Mark Zuckerberg, right, doesn't know how to turn his camera off, or apparently, I don't know, evil hackers can, can then I'm then I'm definitely doing that. Mark Garfunkel, when he's when he's on tour, if he's uh, when he's not actually on stage, puts gaffer tape over his mouth to let everybody know that he doesn't <laughs> want to talk to them. Genuinely is that true. a joke or is this true? No, it's true. He put well. He has done in the past. Let's say he's put he gaffer tape over his mouth. Gaffer tape over his mouth. It means I'm not talking to you. Isn't that good? You're serious that that's what Art Garfunkel does? Yes, he has done it in the past, and yes. he does it to protect his vocal cords because he yeah, has to I protect himself from so. singing, or because he's being a bit of a stroppy. Who knows? Frankly, if, and if Art, if you're listening, that's Mark Kermode who said stroppy and not. Yeah, me. and Art, if you're listening, it's Simon Mayer who said that you put gaffer tape over your mouth to tell people that you don't want to talk to them. And frankly, it's a showbiz anecdote. Anyway, it's time now for our DVD of the week at last. <laughs> well, the hilarity continues. Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. Terrible news from the M1 just in. A cement mixer has collided with a prison van. Motorists are asked to look out for 16 hardened criminals. <laughs> Joke courtesy of Ronnie Corbett. A cut above the usual. Uh, well, also, uh, in next week's programme, we're going to be talking to an out-of-work contortionist who says he can no longer make ends meet. <laughs> is it again? Is that the two Ronnies? <laughs> yeah. There was a fire at the mainland, the main inland revenue office in London today, but it was put out before any serious good was done. <laughs> Finally, uh, next week we're going to be talking to a car designer who's crossed a Toyota with Quasimodo and he's come up with a hatchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> anyway, so they're all courtesy of Ronnie Corbett and copyright, definitely. You but see, anyway, Mark, what? No, I was just say, you see, people are down on the 70s, but it did give us the two Ronnies. Anyway, yes, Simon. The game is out on a limited edition Blu-ray, a great tense thriller made in between Seven and Fight Club and one of Fincher's most underrated efforts. I'm sure you agree. Did you hear about poor old Fincher? He was I a didn't. victim of identity fraud last week and lost his ID. And now we just have to call him Dav. <laughs> it's not that. That is not something Ronnie Corbett would ever, <laughs> no, ever he wouldn't. Said. No. That's Coming not up to there with, you up now, Mark. They've all been a, marooned. Yeah, go on. As a rainy day in New York is out for people to keep and watch Yay! again. Yay! Again and again, some starring Timothy Chalamet. Chalamet! Timothy Gatsby Chalamet! So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The last line there of Trolls World Tour, <laughs> which is out on Monday. Jocelyn in Salford, <laughs> looking forward to seeing Timothy. Showing off his range again in a rainy day in New York. I wonder if he'll stretch from Faye Winsome Internet Boyfriend to Faye Winsome Internet Boyfriend in Tweed. <laughs> the Life Dyslexic says Trolls World Tour is out on DVD already. I am still seeing it on the side of buses, saying in cinemas now. Sign of the times. 
uh, Christina Arrol Rogers says, Play Misty for me, often compared to Fatal Attraction, but a far superior film. Rod with a B says, uh, The game is utterly underrated. Such a clever paranoia-inducing film. And Simon Reed says, The game is underrated. One of Fincher's best, even if he thinks otherwise. What does he know? What does Mark think is our DVD of the week? Here's the answer. Well, I'm going for two, two choices, an old and a new. For the uh, old one, I'm going to go for Play Misty for me, which I think is great, not least because of the way in which, uh, you know, it's a Clint Eastwood movie about playing records. And uh, I think it's, it is clearly the thing that then gives you that, that kind of, you know, fatal attraction, erotic thriller uh, journey afterwards. And then on uh, DVD, I'm just, I, I actually I thought this was out already, but Radioactive um, is on this list, and I'm going to choose that because uh, it, it's, what, you know, it's one of those films that wasn't, seen uh, very widely because uh, you know lockdown happened it was due to have a cinema release and then it ended up I think going to streaming services and it, you know it was all set to go anyway it's it's well worth seeing it's flawed there are problems with it but it is an adventurous way of telling a story as Sam Riley said it's not a biography of the Curies it is um, it's a biography of radiation um, and we began this by saying that I I just finished watching uh, Chernobyl, which I watched all of in three days. Because oh, I you've already a... told us this. No, I know, I know, but because of, because of radiation. So I was bringing it oh, back. I, I was doing, it's a device. You start somewhere, you go off, you wibble around, you waffle, diddly diddly dong. Lucy Lou says the thing about Trump, blah, 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 blah. You and I say all the stuff about each other's books that Simon Paul has to cut out, or that Joe will, and then he comes back. It's the hilarity episode. <laughs> anyway, also next week. Um... Oh, it's, it's pathetic how much we enjoy giving people more work. <laughs> oh, it all makes work for the working, the working man, to, man do. to do. All those who believe in psychokinesis, please raise my right hand. <laughs> So who's when is that is that two Ronnies? It's a two Ronnies joke again. Copyright that them is, and not to be repeated. That is genius. And that's that where is we leave. Absolute genius. Our hilarity episode. Who knows what the theme will be next week, but it's been fun. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts.